Hi, Stephen. You have a call today with Rudy. Hi, everyone. Welcome in uh, this new podcast. And today I'm very honored. Um, I have here Rudy Munard with me. And uh, Rudy and me, we have a long history together. We actually know each other more than 20 years. And I took my marketing classes in uh, the Ghent University um, with Rudy as my professor back then. I did my thesis together with um, Rudy and then we worked together for two years in Vlerik and we, we always stayed friends since, since then. And for me, Rudy is always a source of inspiration and a critical mind. If I write a new book, he's always the first one to read it and to give me his honest feedback. So Rudy, very welcome in this uh, podcast here with me. Thank you very much for inviting uh, me, dear, uh, dear Stephen. And I, and I must say, this kind of what I would call uh, mentorship is reciprocal. It's by uh, it's bi-directional. Um, if uh, I'm honest about it, one of the reasons that I got into what I would call the field of digital disruption, digital innovation, uh, has always been you. If uh, I'm honest about it, digital would not have been so important in my teaching and in my research if I would not have known you. So uh, you you. have always provided me with uh, your great inspiration. And as I always tend to say, uh, academics always pride themselves on their publications. But I know in my case, there's only one person who has written a book and has actually created a marketing function. And that's mm -hmm. you, Stephen, because you wrote a book on the conversation manager. And before I knew it, less than a couple of months later, people were recruiting conversation managers all over the place. So my dear, congratulations. And it's <laughs> great to see you have really, really superseded me. So it's an honor to be talking to you this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're too kind. Um, you're a professor of marketing, uh, strategic marketing, um, if, if you look at the last few years, um, in your opinion, is marketing changing or is it just the same as always, but with a digital vocabulary behind it? The digital vocabulary is, by, 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 uh, is, of course, an important qualifier. I mean, you could say with the cliche, you could say with the buzzword. I mean, if marketing isn't digital, it's not going to be marketing in, 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 uh, as it is now. Um, so digital, I mean, absolutely has had a, a, a huge impact. If we're looking at how the field has evolved, um, some issues have come back and actually with a bigger stance, if I look at, for instance, within the field of business to business marketing, what we see nowadays is, for instance, the, the emphasis on, on sales funnel management on lead management on customer relationship management remember it was big in the back in the in the beginning of the years 2000 it has mm. then then it became a little bit quiet on that term and nowadays it's back in full force so from from that perspective we have seen a uh, a major uh, major changes we have also seen in the, within the field of marketing that the concepts of of value remember we were talking about customer value propositions a couple of years ago and it 
it's still important, but we have seen nowadays also, it's not only about customer value anymore, it's also something like societal value that is, has become uh, more important. We see an emphasis, and it's still in its developing stage, that Romi, as we would call it, return on marketing investments, has become more and more important. Marketing must prove itself. We see the whole nature of where we would say marketing was traditionally what I would call a functional game, more and more, and that's also partly in in in, in uh, due to the to the digital disruption that is the experiential field and the marketing of experiences. I know uh, Joe Pine wrote about it or something like twenty years ago, but. Today we see it more and more being becoming important. So if you're looking at the whole field, and as, as you know, I'm the academic director of the Master of Marketing program at TIAS. If I look at how we have to change the curriculum on a year-to-year basis, mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. the changes are dramatic. You might say, all right, we still have marketing intelligence and marketing research, but for that part, I mean, we have the whole digital revolution nowadays. In, in, in this case, we also have, in this case, the very important part of ethnographic research and the power of small data. So on the marketing research, on the value proposition, yes, there's uh, huge differences as well. If you're looking at what goes on now in, in, in pricing, there are terms such as OPEX pricing didn't exist. Something like, for instance, five years ago, if you go now into the fields of CapEx versus OPEX pricing, there's an abundant literature and we could continue. Mm-hmm. I think... Sometimes I envy my colleagues, and they will not probably agree with me, but my uh, colleagues in accounting, finance, management, I mean, things are pretty stable over there. Mm-hmm. But marketing, <laughs> that is, I mean, it's, it's, you could look at it, it's a tsunami, but that's a negative uh, 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 word for it. If you look at it from a positive, there's constantly something opening up as a new, uh, uh, novel opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's inspiring. Really, you know that I, I love to challenge the traditional marketing and that, that's my role to say this is dead and from now on you have to do this. Eh? That's what people like me do. Uh, you, you know that, that sometimes I talk about the segment of one that you don't yeah. need to think in segments, you need to hyper-personalize. Um, I usually say that the unique selling proposition is completely dead because now you have to be good in almost everything um, because the standards are higher. You as, as a researcher in the field of marketing, do you think it, it, it goes so far or am I exaggerating with these things? Um, as a good friend. You can say it honestly. Yeah? This is a conversation yeah, um, to get your opinion. Yeah. Um, I, I was talking with a colleague about it, and there's an article, and I can actually send it to, to you. It's called uh, Science as Organized Sepsis. Mm-hmm. And there's much to be said about that. Uh, I always tend to say um, some of the things that that uh, and, and uh, some of the things that the, the evangelists uh, and, and this is not a good word to describe and uh, what you are doing in this case, uh, Stephen. Uh, but what, what but what the evangelists are doing is they are portraying a particular kind of uh, future. Our task is as a scientist is I can't do the same role. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. Yeah. My task as a scientist is to say, all right, let's have a look at the evidence. What does it tell us? For instance, I am always looking forward to, to give an example. Um, um, I, I, I'm always looking forward to that level five self-driving car. Uh, that is fantastic. 
If I look at the great specialist of MIT, he says it's going to be there in 2070-2075. That's the great specialist on, on self-driving cars from MIT. I mean, that's pretty much as a top-notch scientist, scientific researcher. Mm-hmm. Others will say it's going to be there within two years' time. Predictions about the future tend to be probably wrong. Anyhow, so it's going to be somewhere in between. What I find, if we just take an academic perspective, we will look in hindsight and say it played out that way. Mm-hmm. And that's the wrong thing. If we are very naive and we're going to say, well, this is what the future is going to look like, and actually it's going to be there today, I don't believe that. I don't think it's going to work out that way. And you have some evangelists who just take, I mean, a very eclectic stance at how evolutions go, and on the basis of analogies, storytelling, and so on and so forth, create a future of their own. That's not something that I like to see, for instance, on YouTube, but it provides a lot of clicks. I don't put you in in that position, by the way, Mm -hmm. because I know and I've been there, and if this is a podcast, I would like to say that two of the, probably the two best investments I've made in research, except freeing up my own research time once upon a while, but the two best investments I've made through the last five years were the disruption tour I participated in, and that was led by you and Peter Hinsen uh, five years ago, and the China tour last year. Thank you. Because I saw you in action. And it is fantastic to see you as some kind of what I would call in magician takers as apprentice, uh, apprentices through the wonderful world of, of innovation and to see what's possible. And I think your role in society is to say, all right, this is what I see today. And this might be what the future is. Mm-hmm. It's my task as, as an academic, as a scholar to say, this is, this is possible. This is where we need to take a stance on it. Will the self-driving car be there today? No way. And will it there be within two years' time? My best guess, probably not. Last week we were mailing about that that article about robotics. Same thing all over again. But I think that the world of innovation, like you, to burn the world forward, because if we just do and say, right, this is fantastic and it's not going to go that fast probably we are missing something and it is my task to be to organize steps as you were referring to the segment of one i often use your fantastic clip on the segment of one in my courses on segmentation i ask the students is this correct or not and you know my stance on it this is not correct Mm -hmm. from a perspective is this something we could work to Probably yes, but if you look at it, segmentation organizes the strategic dialogue, so we can't use a segment of one. We always chunk reality in bits that are actually working fine. And as long as the world is not fully digital and costs come into play, there's going to be what I would call switching and transaction costs. And then always you will have something like chunking of processes within organization so that segmentation will be there. So. There's and, and we could go at great length in that. I think that the advantage is that the idea is that people like you and Peter Hinsen, who I, both of you I esteem very highly, uh, because I would not be in my research agenda if I wouldn't have had the enlightenment by guys like you. It is my task as an academic to say, all right, this is... This is, I always use, if I may put like that, and I find that an interesting concept, and I use that very often, as you know, the Icarus paradox. Mm-hmm. 
Companies use recipes to turn their their pro processes, their operations into a success. And such an ingredient might be entrepreneurship. It might be another buzzword nowadays, agility. One of the buzzwords also, or one of the recipes is digitization. If we don't do digital, we're gonna be inert. Too much of that recipe is gonna be dysfunctional. There we're gonna have the Icarus paradox. Too much of a good recipe will probably be counterproductive. Somewhere in, the tr in between truth will be. And we need guys like you to burn the world forward. I fully, I mean, that's fully my stance on this one. Okay. Uh, recently, really, I saw on LinkedIn that you had a, a three-day customer centricity course at uh, TIAS. Um, I was I was really interested by that. Can, can you tell us um, how companies should should start with customer experience? And also, a second question to that is, what is the role of leadership in that? Because um, you also feel this. Every company that I meet, um, they all tell me that they are investing a lot in customer experience. It's always one of their four pillars that they have on their PowerPoint slide. But if you then look at the facts, they, sometimes they have a negative net promoter score. They have bad customer satisfaction results. So it's like they all say they want to be customer centric, but in real life, there's no commitment by the leadership from it. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? How you how you think companies should start with it and what the role of leadership is in that? Yeah, um, a couple of issues. I think, I mean, if you look at the conversation within business schools, it's much about the leadership uh, as such. Um, and sometimes I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit uh, sad about that because we think that we can teach people to become leaders and then they take a three, four, five day course on leadership and they learn good things about coaching, about storytelling and so on and so forth. But they forget that we sometimes need to get the facts right. And so if, if leadership starts with yourself, then we haven't put the investment, the leadership in the hands of the customer. I think mm -hmm. that's probably, I mean, it's difficult to organize and, and, and this is a concept you, that you've created and quite rightly so, extreme customer centricity. Uh, it is difficult to imagine that people will be extremely customer centric if they start by thinking about how they should behave. That's a first. And I find that a little bit sad within business schools nowadays that more and more the functional disciplines and you may call it functional process disciplines, such as marketing, finance, and so on and so forth, are discredited because everybody wants to be a leader. That's, um, that's, that's, that's a dangerous, very dangerous uh, evolution. If I look at, 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 at what, at, at, I think that everything starts when you're talking about customer centricity with your simple observation that customers have a choice. This is where, I mean, if the customers in the seat, in the director seat of the company, a customer can choose you or they can't choose you. A customer mm -hmm. can even say, I mean, yuck, I don't like your offer and even brag about it on the internet. Nowadays, it's, I mean, it's Twitter, it's Instagram, and what else do we have? And negative stories about that one as well. A customer can, if they like it, 
actually even develop a habit for it. We tend to look at habit, and it's going to be interesting to see. I would like once to share, and maybe at another moment, some, some ideas with you about that. But habits are very important. How is that going to interplay, for instance, with marketing to Alexa and so on and so forth, marketing mm -hmm. to machines in the future, because every habit started as a first successful, first purchase and so on and so forth. And this is what we have nowadays. Customers have a choice, and that's, I mean, if you ask me, where does customer centricity start? It starts with a profound customer understanding. Mm -hmm. And digital plays an important role in it. Last week I learned that there's one bank in the Benelux, let me put it like that, one bank in the Benelux that has on average 3,000 A-B tests running concurrently. 3,000? 3,000. Okay. I mean, I was astonished. I mean, I was, it left me flabbergasted. I mean, 3,000. I mean, and if you look at it then, Stephen, and you look at, I mean, most of the marketing research textbooks nowadays, they still approach marketing research and very often approach marketing research as if it was an ad hoc kind of approach. Mm -hmm. That's why I love guys like uh, Tom Derek and the other people from Insights because they have the consumer consulting board says, well, it's an online engagement. Wow, this is what we need. So it starts with a profound customer understanding. I think once you have that customer understanding correct, I think that the next thing to do is that we need to have to develop a winning proposition. Again, over there, in this case, disruption digital comes in. I always call that when we're talking about digital marketing, People ask me, what do we mean by digital marketing? I always use the same acronym for it, M2P2. Means in this case, it can relate to markets and it can relate to media. It can relate to products and it can relate to processes. And if you're looking at that, there's a lot of change that goes on. A lot of the value propositions today are not possible. What's more important, I think, if you look at the books you have been writing uh, and that have been inspiring so many thousands of people, I wish I had such blockbusters, my friends. <laughs> um, but if you look at that, the central lesson, and people tend to ignore that, we tend to look at customer journeys mm -hmm. as a technical yeah. solution to investigate customer behavior. The real contribution of customer journey is that in this case, the customer journey is part of your customer value proposition. If you're looking at it, I mean, today, I mean, a couple of st some stuff arrived over here today. Uh, a wonderful movie, Hidden Figures, by the way, a fantastic movie on ladies a bit in the NASA and on innovation. I can dearly recommend it. And in order to do it through Bolt.com, I have no affinity with Bolt.com, except they deliver on time and I do it magnificently. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the customer value proposition of this simple movie, Hidden Figures, because if I can't find it, I can't order it. The customer journey, the total end-to-end -end solution is part of your value proposition. Today I drank a duvel, what else, on a terrace in Antwerp. Why? Because they had it. Otherwise, probably I would have stuck with a coffee. We need to have a customer centricity builds on a profound customer understanding. It builds on developing a winning proposition. And the next thing that we need to have is we need to have to build that customer driven organization. That's what you have been talking about very often. But if I may put it like that, I think if I'm, if I may summarize it, there are three importance that are supporting a strong value proposition. That is, you need to have the intelligence right. Think about customer relationship management. You need to have the processes correctly. Think about innovation. 
think about customer relation about branding and so on and so forth and you need if i may put it like that you need to have the momentum right mm -hmm. let me explain people often talk about culture it reminds me of an old quote i've once read in a uh, the economist where a businessman said the only culture you will find is in the in this organization is in the yogurt in the canteen <laughs> bad culture well bad culture is as good an example is also I mean, characterizing uh, some organizations. We need to be very careful about what we say in this podcast, but some not-for-profit organizations are performing pretty poorly, only in this case on what I would call culture. I think culture is only one part of the ingredient. It has also to do with leadership. It has also to do with organization. Uh, and one of the things that I find very weird nowadays, Stephen, Mm -hmm. is that I find that organizations try to organize as much as possible through structuring the processes. Yes. You have seen that as well, probably. Yeah, I agree. I, mean, I, I am now in education, uh, and I was talking about it with a very good colleague today. If I look at how many processes and procedures that you have to do to, to get something correct nowadays in, I mean, I, I, I am fortunate to work at TSTS. TS it was, according to the, the latest survey, the only four-star four star education in the Netherlands. I don't think, in all honesty, that we got those four stars because we have, for everything that we do, three, four papers to fill out. I think that it happens because we care for a customer and we want to go the extra mile about that. And one of the weird things that I see nowadays, but this is an intriguing observation, is that companies are so scared of negative variation, they try to organize everything through processes, and in the meantime, they kill also the positive variation. We call mm -hmm. that entrepreneurship. Yeah. This is the weird thing that I find. And for anybody listening to this podcast, I would say, remember, structuring is not organizing. Yes, it's one part, and it's the most devious part that most companies are engaging in. We were confronted. The reason why we are talking is probably because I made some kind of impression so many years ago uh, when I was teaching at the university in Ghent back in 98, by the way. Uh, and I cared about customers. I cared about the students in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I see many people nowadays, in, I mean, everybody goes through an educational process. Many people nowadays want to be good marketeers in education, but they can't because there's a governing body that says we need to have these processes and we equate processes with quality. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with it and it has nothing to do with customer centricity. Then do you see a change in, in, in leadership that, that some leaders are starting to understand that and, and are, are really, let, let's say, are, are more open for entrepreneurship uh, as well? Is that something you, you feel that's happening or are you more, more negative about that? I, I'm, I'm always very careful. I, I, I was, I mean, uh, as I'm writing now my uh, book, I was, I have here a couple of books in front of me that I still, I mean, wanted to go to, to browse back. Uh, and by the way, the book that also is here on my desk to, to go a second time through it, the customers the day after tomorrow. So, uh, really, I mean, I'm picking out two books and I see yours now. Also, uh, the third book uh, uh, behind, uh, uh, lying underneath it. I, I, I 
again, this is the scientist talking now in me, mm-hmm. if I may say so. So the Rosenzweig wrote a book about it, The Halo Effect. And he said, when you're looking at, for instance, Percy Barnevik, he was, I mean, credited with great leadership and thinking about the customer, etc., etc. Suddenly, the company went south, and it was all... Percy Barnevik's uh, style. There was another book uh, by Roger Martin, one of the rising stars in the in, in, in the field of management, who wrote that in highly influential book, The Design of Business. And I was reading about it, and he was absolutely uh, um, admiring a company called BlackBerry. Mm-hmm. You know what happened with BlackBerry? Yeah, I remember that, yes. <laughs> I am very careful about saying this is what the leadership i think from a marketing perspective i always tend to say there are three characteristics that from a marketing perspective we need to have and we must not look at their what i would call charisma because that's a very poor world word we mustn't look at um their character we must look at behaviors and if we judge them by behaviors i think that three elements are are are, are important the first element is do they really want to discover? Do they really want to make a change in the businesses that they are? So mm-hmm. discovery is number one. If you have leaders who say, all right, I mean, let's fulfill the old and let's, I mean, let's create that kind of operational excellence, I mean, and so on and so forth, then, I mean, actually you're, you're fertilizing in this case inertia. There's a second issue. They must build, in this case, momentum, whether it's through the sharing of stories, whether it's through good execution, whether it's through decisiveness, a characteristic that we tend often to forget. Uh, Decisions are not wrong or right, they are decisions, but they need to create that momentum within that organization. And there's a third issue which is important I find, and I find important. That is, if you're looking at how today's society is, and the importance of what I would call society value and the mm-hmm. issue of transparency, I think that good marketing leaders must not only think about unique selling propositions, they must not only think about customer value propositions, but they must think about the value proposition also in this case for society. Mm-hmm. As we all are famous. We all remember the story that our good friend Jeff Bezos keeps a, a, an empty seat in some meetings to represent the customer. Yes. If I look at the documented evidence on how Amazon sometimes is organized and some of the stories that came out from the workforce, mm-hmm. maybe it's time that he also puts an empty seat for the employee in the meetings. So that in addition to creating value for the customer and creating value for the shareholder, which are the two most important parts, that employees are also, in this case, not ignored. That's that's a challenge that future leaders will have. Uh, Michael Porter wrote about it. It's not only about creating shareholder value, it's creating shared value. That's the long road forward in this case. We will not have the answer today. I think that the fully self-driving car will be here a lot faster than actually what I would call a society where companies are truly creating all of them or most of them shared value. But it's something that we need to work to. So just like you're very adamant about disruption, I am very adamant about what I would call business, marketing and society. Fantastic, Rudy. Thank you uh, for your insights. Thank you for sharing it. And uh, 
I hope people enjoyed the conversation. I did. And um, I, I wish you a wonderful time. And I can't wait until we have a duvel together in the next few weeks. Thanks. Okay. Thanks for being here, Rudy. Thank you very much for having me on uh, your podcast. I hope people will appreciate it. And it was a pleasure talking with you. Take care. Take care.